Dory and I, we make charts for our kids. And you get checks on that chart, and the more checks that you get, at the end of the week you get a reward, and the end of the month that reward accumulates to something even better. Sometimes those rewards are monetary. Sometimes those rewards are just that, a special permission to participate in something or an activity. And sometimes it's an item that a child could set their goals on, like a phone, for example, for a prepubescent teenager. (laughs) Much of the charts that we create, we noticed, are morning heavy. By that I mean that there are a disproportionate amount of things that our kids have on the list that they have to fulfill that are based in the morning. Like making beds, getting dressed, not fighting over clothes, setting the table for breakfast, getting breakfast ready, putting lunch in the lunchbox, and putting our lunchbox in our book bags, brushing our teeth, combing our hair, taking our vitamins. You all get the idea. Well, just like is the case between Dory and myself, one of our kids is very easygoing in the morning, and one isn't. I won't tell you which one is not easygoing in the morning because she would kill me. (laughs) We realized after a few weeks of doing these charts and looking at the check marks from both children that their results were incredibly lopsided. So we realized it really wasn't so fair because we were setting one kid up to fail and another kid up to succeed. So we started making child-specific charts. One child has to get up in the morning, brush their teeth, set the table, make their bed, all these other things. But after long consideration and deliberation with the other child, we realized that we would give her checks for simply getting up in the morning. She gets extra credit for putting both feet on the floor (laughs) and two checks for coming downstairs for breakfast. Now, you should bear in mind, if you haven't been to our home, that our bedrooms are on the second floor and the kitchen is on the ground floor. So where else we would go for breakfast, I don't know. But just coming downstairs for breakfast and yet alone exiting, she gets two checks for. As we were having this deliberation with one of my two children, this particular child said to me, Dad, I need some traction. I need some positive reinforcement. If I start my day riddled with failure, how can I learn at school and feel that I can achieve all my potential? Let me hit some shots within my reach before I go for the three-pointer, Dad. And for those of you that know my daughter, Yes, she does speak like that. The kid's right. We need to work within a different framework for different people. We have to work in a framework that's achievable so that we can garner some success. Otherwise, we keep setting ourselves up for failure and we keep setting ourselves up for disappointment. Our hope that Dory and I had for our child, it was utopian. And what we realized is that we had to be more real. We had to be less romantic. We had to dial in to what one does well and the other one does well, which aren't always the same thing. I share this story with you with the permission of both of my children and my wife as an emblem for a pervasive feeling 
of disappointment and failure that we as a people feel in being Jewish and what we have felt especially in the last three months. Many in Israel, many in Europe, and even here in Closter feel a deep sense of fear in our hearts that some have never felt in their life before. We feel a sense of emptiness as we reach across the aisle looking for real partners for peace. And if we listen to the Palestinian Authority's leader, Mahmoud Abbas's speech that he made at the United Nations just over a week ago, spewing false, tired, and repetitive narrative, it makes it clear to me and probably clear to you that Mahmoud Abbas can't hold duplicitous views, one where he condemns Hamas and then condemns Israel for the same crimes and be expected to be a reasonable partner for peace. We also know empirically and in our hearts that anti-Semitism is on the rise. But what frankly is shocking to me is that all of us, and myself included here, are surprised by this. Since the inception of Judaism, we have been hated, and we have been vilified, and we have been railed against. Whether it was the Amalekites, or the Spaniards, or the Cossacks, or the Nazis, or Hezbollah, or Hamas, Jews have been the victims of anti-Semitism for all of their existence. So why do we have this utopian view of what Judaism should look like in a global world? And why are we walking around constantly disappointed for not meeting and exceeding those goals? When I ask people in my office, when teaching in the high school, in my study groups, or even all of you, whether they're politicians or members of the synagogue or pundits or just people who are committed, whether they live here or they live in Israel, I ask them, what does peace look like? And think about this question in your mind. What does peace look like in your mind between the Israelis and the Palestinians? So many of them have an answer that includes kumbaya, It includes Palestinians and Jews sitting around a campfire, sipping tea with mint in it from the Hafinjan. And the Palestinian neighbor is going to take out the Israelis' garbage on Rosh Hashanah and bring over a shiny pomegranate from his garden. And Israelis will break the fast of Ramadan with special gifts and hugs for their neighbor Ahmed. And that's the paradigm that they've set up. And frankly, as a national aspiration, it's absurd. Each day that we set our mind to that, we set ourselves up for failure. We begin a process that is destructive, a process that will yield very few fruits and discourages us before we even sit down across the table. We'll end up walking away without concessions, without serious advances, and we leave feeling disappointed. We're let down, and that's bad. What makes us so arrogant to think that the centuries-long struggles and deep-seated scars from the narratives of the Palestinian people and the narratives of the Jewish and Israeli people will instantly disappear, supplanted by hope 
and by peace. Let me illustrate a little something for you. In the past 18 months, the following movies have been leading the box offices when they were released. The Butler, The Help, Long Walk to Freedom, Mandela, 42, Django Unchained, 12 Years a Slave, and I'm only listing a few. All of these movies, which are extraordinary in their own right, deal with the issue of race and equality. And bear in mind, all of these movies, even if they're back in time in their depiction, have been released in the past 18 months, maybe two years. But it's been 52 years, this January, since Martin Luther, this, it's been 52 years, rather, this past August, since Martin Luther King said, the I Have a Dream speech, standing with Abraham Lincoln as his backdrop in Washington, D.C. It's been 50 years since historic votes for black Americans in the South. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a black president of the United States in his second term. So as so much time has passed and so much advance has happened, why are we still so fixated on racial movies and the narrative of the oppressed people? Or to take it an even more serious step further, away from the silver screen and into the real world, why is Ferguson, Missouri still in the news today? Obviously, we can't accept shootings of unarmed people. That's simple. But are we being naive to think that racism is gone and black people aren't living with real scars? Perhaps even scars that they never had in their life but they inherited? That they don't feel personally? Just because 50 years has passed and it wasn't part of their narrative? Does it mean that when white police officers shoot black kids that we'll see it as an issue of police brutality and not something that's racially motivated? Is that heritage erased after 50 years, after the passing of laws, after a powerful speech in Washington, after a black president is elected, after a treaty? What makes that scar in that time go away? What makes us think that we all sit around the campfire enjoying that tea? as we do in our mind's eye. If that's the case, how do we believe that a one day could be handshake on a White House lawn will make years of paranoia, will make the agony of a parent's broken heart, will take decades of frustration and distrust and make it magically disappear between Israelis and Palestinians? Are we not setting ourselves up for failure by creating utopian goals? It's true, abundantly true. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. And as I shared from this very Bima and Rosh Hashanah, that so much of what we learned from the Pew Report isn't even relevant a year later. And I am not, and I don't think you should be cavalier for one minute about facing anti-Semitism in America or throughout Europe or, of course, in Israel. But I do think we need to better decide as a people what it is that we really want. 
If we want to stop anti-Semitism as a whole, while it is a very noble cause, I believe it is one that will set us up for failure. 3,000 years, we haven't been successful. What makes us think we have the elixir right now to make it all go away? And if it does go away, then what? I would say that what we really need to do is not look to end anti-Semitism, but rather combat anti-Semitism. And there is a marked distinction between the two. Combating anti-Semitism is the inverse. It means being Semitic. It means creating a vibrant Jewish life. It means modeling a vibrant Jewish life. It means finding ways to contribute to the community at large and to realize with the Jew on your shoulder proudly that you can make the world a bigger, better, stronger, healthier place. That, I believe, is combating anti-Semitism. If we were successful in a utopian idea of making anti-Semitism go away and it all disappeared, well then what? Is our job finished? Is that what being Jewish is all about, just combating anti-Semitism and making it go away? Then we're a people, then we connect to God, then we make the world a better place? I don't think so. I was in Washington, D.C. a little over a week ago. And when I was there, I met with Jonathan Kessler, who is the Director of Leadership Development at the American Israel Public Affairs Committee at APAC. That's a very fancy title for saying that Jonathan has assembled a team and he has successfully created a strategy that has positively infiltrated college campuses with leadership and thought on behalf of APAC. So Jonathan shared some data with me that I didn't know, and I doubt most of you know it. So by show of hands, and be honest, because tonight is the night to be honest. <laughs> Who here is seriously worried about growing anti-Israel rhetoric from college professors on campus? Raise your hand. Almost all of you have your hands up. Anyone, just a quick number, anyone have any idea about how many anti-Israel professors there are that speak loudly and proudly of their anti-Israel vir viral beliefs on campus? Charlie, how many you think? 742. Anyone else? Josh? 2,000. One other? One other guess? 5,000. The answer is about 900. There are about 900. So now let's do a little bit of math. Anyone know how many four-year college and universities degree-granting institutions there are in the United States of America? Not community college, four-year university-granting degrees? Anyone? 2,400. 2,400 and change in the United States of America. And these universities vary in size. So you take something like the University of Michigan and the University of Syracuse, or Syracuse University, which happen to be two institutions that have a lot of kids from Temple Emanuel that attend both of these schools. Anyone know how many professors there are full and part-time, adjunct and non-adjunct at University of Michigan? 6,400, the University of Michigan, not the largest campus in North America. At Syracuse, just shy of 2,000. 
with 2,400 schools out there, and if we average 1,000 professors per school, some are larger, some are smaller, and I think that's a pretty fair average, considering there's 6,500 at Michigan, that means there are 2,400,000 professors at universities teaching in the United States of America. And there are 900 of them that hate Israel. And all of you had your hands up. All of you. And just to be fair, so did I. We're worried about less than a percent. We're worried about this small fraction of a people tilting the scales of education and Zionism in America. Let's take it a step further with some more facts that will blow your hair back because it blew my hair back. Did you know that in the past decade, out of those 2,400 schools, a hundred of them have raised, pursued, or discussed anti-Israel resolutions to divest from Israel on campus? 100 out of 2,400 schools, less than 3%. That means raised, pursued, or discussed. Anyone know how many of these universities have divested from Israel? Zero, zilch, none, not one, not one. Twelve of them, twelve of them, of these 100 that entertained the idea, passed student-based resolutions. But more than double that number, more than 24, had them defeated by vote, and all the rest were thwarted before it even got through the process. And if you ask why, Jonathan Kessler, the head of leadership development at APEC, says very simply that being anti-Israel is not the zeitgeist, which means it's not the spirit of the time, it's not the intellectual fashion, it's the, not the dominant school thought that typify, typifies or influences culture on university campuses today. And what's interesting is that in the past decade and even two decades, some of these very same schools, some that I didn't even mention, they did divest when it came to issues of apartheid in South Africa or issues of dealing with companies that employed sweatshop laborers in their particular interests. And it also divested with companies that invested in tobacco or even fossil fuels. But when it came to Israel, 12 student-based resolutions, but not one university divested. And all of us are up at night over it. This tells us two strong facts. It tells us, first of all, that there is anti-Semitism out there. It exists, and in some places, it's even rampant, and it's worrisome. But the second thing it tells us is that it isn't our biggest worry. It hasn't even gained traction. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS movement, some of you might be familiar with, it's really about a form of brand defamation. Anything connected to Israel is bad has nothing to do with products or settlements. So I ask all of you, what do you do to fight BDS? What do you do when you find out that there's someone boycotting something from Israel? And it's really about Israel, not the settlements. Are you buying Israeli products to patronize those organizations and institutions and companies? that are selling here? Are you patronizing the stores that sell Israeli products to combat those that are trying to stop them 
like those protests that have happened at Trader Joe's where they're pulling Israeli products from the shelf? Are we going to Trader Joe's and saying, I'm coming here because you do sell these Israeli products? Or are we only forwarding scary articles and posts on Facebook, creating fear amongst everyone around us? Are we telling people when we see BDS that Salam Fayyad, who is the immediate past president of the Palestinian people, actually said that BDS is harmful for the Palestinian people and it doesn't promote their cause? Are we telling them that? Are we telling them that the United States Task Force on Palestine calls BDS unhelpful? This is a cause dedicated to helping the Palestinians. And they say BDS doesn't work. But we're too focused on the fear that we think is viral, even though it's there, but really much more minuscule than we give it credit for. When we hear about SodaStream, and we hear the terrible news that BDS might have influenced SodaStream to move its factory from Alea Dumi, which is just inside the Green Line outside of Jerusalem, to a new factory in the Negev, which means 964 Palestinian employees that get jobs, benefits, salary, two hot meals a day, and transportation to and from their work, and keeps them simply out of trouble by being employed, and they work hand in hand with Jews. And on the campus of SodaStream, there is a mosque and a synagogue for them to pray separately, and they dine in a dining hall that unites them together. That this will now be gone, and they will all lose their jobs, and there won't be some other form of employment for them, thanks to BDS. Are all of us going out then and claiming that we need to help them keep their jobs so that they feel some sense of connectivity? When they try and stop the stock of SodaStream, are we buying more to tell them that they won't let it go flat and we're going to add the fizz back? Excuse the pun. Or do we just panic over our existence? There were pogroms this summer in France. I saw them with my own eyes. They really happened. Pogroms, just like the old days, where Jews had to huddle up in a synagogue and feared for their life by crazy, riotous people. And it should cause us reason to worry. But there also were rallies supporting Israel. Did you know outside the United Nations, 15,000 people gathered in the afternoon on a random July day just to support Israel? Some were Jews, some were not Jews, but they stood shoulder to shoulder, 15,000 people in the middle of the summer for two and a half hours to say we're one. And New York isn't unique. They did the same thing in San Francisco and Chicago and Miami. Did you know that there was an anti-Israel rally in Berlin? How many of you knew there was an anti-Israel rally this summer in Berlin? Raise your hand high and proud, so many of you. How many of you knew that the parliament of Berlin, Germany, led by its chancellor, Merkel, declared publicly these words, never again on our soil, that a full page ad was taken out on the cover of the leading newspaper in Berlin with a hundred leaders of the parliament and those of celebrity saying that they stand with Israel. Raise your hands high and proud if you knew that. Not as many, but some. And that's good. 
Because what that tells us is that there are people standing for us as well. And perhaps one of our ways to combat anti-Semitism, instead of trying to just destroy it, is indeed standing at those rallies, like they had in Mexico City, like they had in every major city in Australia, like understanding that we know there are people who came out of the woodwork to hate Israel, whether it's Russell Brand or Penelope Cruz, and we all know about Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and his hatred of Zionism and the state. But do we know that more than 200 celebrities signed a pro-Israel letter and resolution? 200 saying that they stood firmly with the people of Israel and their unwarranted attacks being faced by Hamas? And that while they all pursue peace and want peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, that none of them accept Hamas as a legitimate partner for peace? 200 celebrities. And while we can name one or two, we probably can't name them all. Can we list all of those who are firmly in our camp? Because we all know the enemy's names so well. We're not Jews only so we can stop anti-Semitism. And we're not Israel supporters merely to stop Israel bashers. Because if we magically rid ourselves of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, it doesn't guarantee a strong Jewish state and it doesn't guarantee a strong Jewish people. Do you know what the word entropy means? I didn't know what it meant before last week either. It means the possibility of good relationships becoming undone because there's not enough positive energy working through them. It's actually a scientific term, but it applies to our lives as well. Israel can't afford entropy. It can't afford for good relationships to become undone because there's not enough positive energy working through it. Nuclear reactors can't afford to have entropy. Marriages can't afford to have entropy. Countries can't afford to have entropy. And today, I would argue, much more than anti-Semitism, the biggest threat to Israel isn't BDS, it's entropy. It's us losing the positive energy in the relationships that we could build. And that's what the haters are out there trying to do. And I think there's only one way to beat them. Jonathan Kessler gave me a brilliant analogy, and with his permission, I'm going to share it with all of you on what we do. It's a basketball metaphor. Have you ever seen in basketball two seconds left in the game? It's 97 to 97. Player's been fouled. He goes to the free throw line. He's got to make two shots. If he makes the two shots, they're going to win the championship. If he misses the two shots, it's going to go into overtime and they'll probably lose the game. All the people sitting behind the hoop, they're waving their hands and they're blowing their horns and they're making all types of noise and distraction trying to throw the shooter off of his game. And if I stick with the Israel metaphor, they're saying all types of terrible things. They're yelling, Palestinian baby killers and warmonger, land grabber, free Gaza, free Palestine, end the occupation. But the good player, he just dribbles, looks up, takes the shot, and it's nothing but net. And then people say to him afterwards as he's interviewed on the sideline, how are you not distracted by those naysayers, those haters who are trying to get in your head? How did you not get diverted by them? And he replies, who said I didn't get distracted? I just beat them.
I just beat them. If we simply focus on the distraction, we can't focus on our goals. But if we remind ourselves of our goals and we're relentless in our pursuit and are mindful and we're disciplined and increasing increasing exponentially our chances of beating that noise, then we're going to be successful. Because if magically, magically, we can make all of those distractions stop and disappear, it doesn't guarantee that he makes the shot, which guarantees that they don't win the game. That's the real goal, making the shot. And that's why if I were in charge of public relations for Prime Minister Netanyahu, I would have told him, as he stood in front of the United Nations this past week, don't get in the sandbox with Mahmoud Abbas. Don't stand there and say to him what we're justified in and all that's right and all these terrible, hateful lies that he has spewed out. Yes, the prime minister should have defended our soldiers because we stand with our our soldiers and they are moral. And yes, the prime minister should indeed stand proud in defending the land of Israel for its right to defend its citizenry like any other country. But I believe the prime minister should have said, you, you family of nations, you 163 nations, let me tell you something. Israel has dedicated billions of dollars in resource and in mind technology so that we could afford healing for those who are dealing with brain injuries. And I ask you, for those of you in your countries that are dealing with this, grab my hand. We need friends and partners. For those of you in our family of nations, 163 of you, that are dealing with drought issues, we have pioneered desalinization. We have pioneered water reclamation. We have been the leaders in drip irrigation. Grab our hand. We need partners. We want to share this with you. For all of you out there that need to build strong defense, we have been the victims of attack and we know defense by necessity. Grab our hands and be our partners. Show the people of the United Nations and their leadership what Israel is about. And don't put yourself on the defensive because that is how I argue we beat them. It's making the shot. It's not focusing on the noisy distractions. And I think if we're going to be successful, that it's time for every single one of you to start to get deputized. And that means getting on the mountaintop and yelling loudly and proudly what it is that we do so we can combat anti-Semitism instead of just fighting it. There are ways that we do that. One way in particular is that we champion some of the work of APAC and something that we can do as a congregation as well. And working with black colleges and Christian schools and their leaders. Because when we do so, we build the confidence of the kids on campus. They realize at that point that they're not fighting a war just for Jews. They're fighting a war based on ethics and values. And people will stand with you in the camp that we're firmly in on issues of ethics and values, on right versus wrong. And it has deep impacts for the Jewish youth to engage in our future. And we need more support like that. It means that when a school entertains the idea of divestment, we don't rest on our laurels that it will be defeated like all the others. It means we do the opposite of divestment. And that means we invest. We bring opportunities for Jewish and Israeli and Zionistic innovation and leadership 
to these institutions because it strengthens them. It emboldens them. It galvanizes them. And that combats anti-Semitism. Jonathan said it beautifully. He said, when the naysayers stand in front of you and they yell out to you, your mama wears combat boots, some form of denigration that's offered one to the other, our job is no longer to yell back, no, she doesn't. Our job is to grab our mom's arm, take our mom out to a delicious meal, and to buy her a pair of Manolo Blahniks or Jimmy Choo's. Because when you do that, you're not saying, no, she doesn't. You're proving that she doesn't. You're proving demonstratively through your actions what it is to combat those who are saying those horrible things. And when they say those horrible things with your mom on your arm being treated lovingly and with devotion and kindness and goodness wearing her figurative Manolo Blahniks, they can't say with any sense of seriousness or any sense of resting upon a belief that your mama wears combat boots because it's not true. That's how we affect change. That's how we move the tides. These exercises that I share with you, they're not limited to combating anti-Semitism on Israel and on and off of our campuses. All of these techniques work in our life also, just on a different scale and in different platforms. They work when we're making charts for our kids so that we give them a running start and it works when we're creating expectations for our spouses and for our parents and for our coworkers and for all of those people that seem to regularly disappoint us in some way or another. Because once we calibrate the expectations and we hear different narratives and focus on the positives, then perspectives change radically. It's a great fact I learned. Optimists live longer. They live longer first because they want to live longer. And they live longer because they believe in themselves and in others. A pessimist is just a misfortune teller. They'll tell you why Israel won't survive, why the shul won't survive, why a marriage won't survive. But they don't live as long in their hearts or in their bodies. But those that see the opportunities that set up others for success they have greater rewards. Tonight, on this solemn and holy night of the year, I want you to think of the charts that you have in your life. Think of the ones that you've created. Maybe they hang on your refrigerator like ours do. Or maybe they're in your mind. Who's annoyed you? Who's disappointed you? Who's let you down? How many checks do they have? And is it lopsided? How much of it is their fault? And how much is really our fault for projecting unachievable expectations? In closing, I'll share with you something that Prime Minister Netanyahu said on Tuesday when I met with him, which was convenient for me so that I could say in the sermon that I met with Prime Minister Netanyahu on Tuesday. 
He was getting ready to take a few questions from the small group that was assembled. And the facilitator said amongst all these Jewish people, make sure to ask a question and not to make a statement. And Netanyahu said very seriously, I think you're asking the unreasonable from a Jewish crowd. (laughs) Who are we asking the unreasonable from this year? Are we asking the unreasonable from our leaders when we expect that we're going to sit around the campfire singing together with our Palestinian brothers and sisters and bury years upon years of pain and hurt in their narrative and in ours? That magically our animus and distrust will disappear? That with countries and people that have anti-Semitism, which sleeps so lightly in this world, that we will expect it to disappear and the Gentile world will join together in choruses of hallelujah, praising the Jewish people and every one of them and applaud us for all of our contributions and ignore all of our warts? Are we asking the unreasonable for expecting our schools and their professors to have equal love? Are we asking the unreasonable to expect our cinemas and our streets to have racism, a thing of the past, which is also evidenced in our voting booths and in our White House? Are we asking the unreasonable and asking our kids to make their bed in the morning? All of us need to focus on our goals. And tonight is the night that we set our coordinates. Tonight is the night that we stand at the free throw line. And I beg of all of you, for the future of our people, ignore the noise and make the shot. Because if the noise disappears, there's no guarantee that the ball goes in the hoop. And that's what we need to win. And focusing on the distraction is no recipe for our survival. But focusing on the shot always has been and always will be. May we make that shot. May it go in. May the sound of that ball against the canvas remind us of our focus. May it invigorate us. And may that be a fight worth fighting and worth winning too. Amen.